Bibles to turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin with the reading of the text this morning, and then you might keep your scriptures open if you're uh, into that sort of thing, because I'll be kind of coming back and looking at a variety of texts in this chapter for us this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. Listen to God's word to us today. I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we've been looking at this uh, series, we've been in this series looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and we've been thinking about what does it mean to find joy um, in any and all circumstances. Uh, we've been looking at, uh, we've been thinking about living joyfully together and how joy, the joy of the gospel is sort of grounded in the community of faith. And today, as we think about joy, we're going to be thinking about it in terms of straining towards a goal. And so we're going to be talking about God's acceptance of us and we're going to be talking about purpose in our lives. Take a look at Psalm 30 if you would, briefly. It says this, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and have clothed me with joy. I love that image. Isn't that a wonderful image? This image of being in sackcloth and ashes. It was a symbol of repentance and mourning. Suddenly being turned into somebody dancing. What a wonderful image. And maybe you've had an experience like that before. I think about um, particularly athletes kind of have experiences like this where they go through a slump for some time or maybe you're having a bad game and it's strikeout after strikeout after strikeout and the fourth time you come up to the plate out of nowhere, you just hit a home run, um, totally random, and it's as though your morning has turned into dancing, and wow, what a great feeling that is. Except, of course, that life doesn't really often turn out that way most of the time. I mean, if we can just be honest about that, um, tragedy strikes, and you can't just push a button and have joy come back, right? Yet, but we all need joy, and some are lacking joy, and we think about the pandemic, and for many people, 
this year plus of going through this isolation, it's, it has been sort of a sapping, a slow sapping of joy from the lives of, of many followers of Christ. And so that's why we've turned to Philippians. This is Paul's letter of joy uh, and how to find joy in the midst of adversity in the midst of any circumstance in which we find ourselves. Paul wrote this letter, as you might remember, from a couple weeks ago, right around 62 AD, and he writes from prison, probably in Rome, maybe in Caesarea, but probably in Rome, and he's writing back to this beloved community that he had founded about 10 years prior, and he's going to send it 800 miles to where they are. And in this letter, he talks about his joy, and he encourages them to have joy. And so 14 times in this full, short four-chapter letter, Paul talks about joy. He describes his joy. He tells people to have joy. He tells them to rejoice. He encourages joy. And so that's why scholars call it Paul's letter of joy. And what's so remarkable of the, about that, of course, is the circumstance in which Paul finds himself as he pens this letter. He's in prison. Maybe he is in house arrest at this point, but he's been in prison for four years. And the outcome of the awaiting trial in Rome could very well lead to his death. And it's in that circumstance, it's in that condition, that he writes about joy. Well, how is that possible? Either is he lying? Well, no. Well, how is it that he is able to find joy in this kind of situation? One of the main differences, the key difference between joy and happiness, right, is that happiness is circumstantial. So when we have happy things or good things happening to us, we feel happy. And then when bad things are happening to us, we feel bad or we feel sad. But joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is based on convictions. What are our convictions? What is it that we believe to be true? And, and so that's one of the key differences. And Paul is encouraging us to have and to find and discover joy, the joy of the gospel. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there were two groups um, in, in the, uh, and, and there was controversy. I think I said that there was controversy going on in the early church, and, and Paul is going to address this controversy here in this chapter this morning. There were really two groups um, that, that had ideologically oppositional views, and, they, and all around the Mediterranean Rim and all of these new churches that were starting up, they found their way influencing and infiltrating into the congregations. And so these two movements, um, on the one hand, on the, was on the far right, you could say, and the other was on the far left. I'm using opposites so that, because that's what, how you're viewing my gesturing. So, um, you, you know, similar to what we have today, where we have kind of two groups that are almost ideologically opposed to one another. They might not be relationally opposed, but in terms of how they see the world and how they function in society and what's going to be good for the world and all of this, you have kind of the arch uh, arch conservatives on the one side and the arch liberals or progressives on the other. It's not a direct parallel, but, uh, but there are some very clear similarities that Paul is dealing with in a similar kind of situation 
in, in, uh, in this letter here in chapter 3. And so these two groups in, in, within early Christianity, on the one hand, were the legalists. And you remember Paul talking about the Judaizers, the legalists. And these, were, these legalists were people who took the Bible. And remember, the only Bible that they had at this point was, uh, was the Old Testament. The, the New Testament, what we know as the New Testament, the letters that were being written and there were, some were being circulated and they were taking them seriously. There were Paul's, they were very serious, but they weren't canonized yet. All they had was the Hebrew Bible and they had the law and they had the Torah. And within that Hebrew Bible, they're, they're, um, they had a way of viewing this scripture and a way of reading the scripture. Right? So I have some uh, more fundamentalist-leaning friends than I am, and they have ways of talking about the Bible. They say things like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Right? So no interpretation, no nuance, just black, white, follow it, don't use your brain. Right? Just do it. And, and so there's this sort of philosophy that is about taking everything in the Bible literally and following it to the T. Now, nobody actually does that. It's literally impossible to do that. Um, and, but yet there's this philosophy that says, well, that's what we're going to try, right? And that's kind of what's going on uh, here a little bit with the Judaizers. They, there's these people, the, the, the legalists, who are saying the Bible says that in order to be part of the covenant, you need to be circumcised. And so, and then, and that will get you God's favor, and then you need to keep the 613 other commandments in order to keep God's favor for you. And so all of the male, Roman, and Greeks who have just um, found their, their way into the gospel, into the church, now they're saying, you've got to go and have a procedure for the men, and, uh, and this is going to be quite a big deal. Now, some of these things were, some of these laws were laws that they would have obeyed anyway, like the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. But there were so many other laws and rules that didn't seem to make sense for them, and they didn't understand how they would be morally binding, such as don't eat shrimp, uh, don't wear fabrics that are blended together, don't plant two different kinds of seeds in the same garden patch. And so these Jewish Christian leaders, right, mostly self-proclaimed leaders, are coming in saying, you've got to do all these things in order to please God. God wants you to do all of that. Can you imagine if we had a new members class here at MOPC? And uh, hey guys, th there's a medical room down the hall, and after we're done, we're just going to take you, and then, then you can join the church, right? Paul knew how ridiculous this would seem to the outside world. For the Jewish people, yes, this is, this is a covenant that God has made with you, a particular covenant for a particular people. But to the outside world, Paul simply knew because of his encounter when he was blindsided by Jesus on his road to Damascus, that encounter caused him to believe that God cares much less about circumcision and shellfish than he does about accepting his love and grace and living in grateful response and walking with him. I mean, this was the essence of Paul's gospel, right? And so Paul saw the law as something that was for the people of Israel, a covenant with them, 
for a particular time and place, and it becomes a guide for, for us in many ways. But these Greeks and Romans, they just needed to accept God's grace in Jesus Christ and give their lives to following him. Paul struggled with the legalists for a long time. He struggled with them for 15 years. They infuriated him. And so he would go in to preach and he would start a church in Philippi or in Corinth or in Galatia. And after he would leave that town, these folks would come in and they would say, now we're going to correct some things. You've given your life to Jesus. This is wonderful, all that. And now we're going to apply these things if you really want to please God. That got you in. So it's sort of like an existential bait and switch in a sense that in terms of the experience for these people. And that just infuriated Paul. And it turned many people away from the gospel forever. And so Paul begins chapter 3 of Philippians. Take a look at verse 2. He begins by addressing or warning um, the Philippians of this particular kind of far right group, if you want to think of it in those terms. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. These are harsh words. He's talking about circumcision here. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, and so, so they're teaching a gospel that is entirely different than what he has founded this church on. And that's how the chapter starts. Now, when you get to the, towards the end of the chapter, in verses 18 and 19, the chapter ends with Paul addressing the other side of the theological spectrum. These are sort of the more arch liberals or um, progressives, kind of the extreme left, right? And, and they were called the libertines in these days. And they were called the libertines because they loved their liberty. And when we get to these verses, we find that these were Christians who were like totally with Paul on the grace part, right? They're like, yeah, we're in on grace. We accept God's love for us. This is, this is wonderful. Um, and, and we would just uh, enjoy uh, eternal life and living with Christ and Jesus and, and all of that. But they're not really interested in living in any kind of a different way as a result of this, right? So believing they were freed from the law, they thought they could just go on living the way that they had, just kind of adding Jesus to everything else in their lives, a wonderful addition to the pursuit of pleasure. And so the philosophy and the way of life that the libertines followed was an extreme form of hedonism. And hedonism is all about maximizing pleasure, and minimizing pain. Uh, and so, of course, being a Christian and having God's love and getting to have eternal life, this sounded wonderful to the libertines. That's great. But now I also want to minimize any pain I might experience, any sacrifice I might do. No, I don't want to make sacrifices. I don't want to experience pain. I just want the benefits. This is about minimizing pain and maximizing, and maximizing uh, pleasure. So I still want to participate in drunkenness, and uh, I don't want to have any sexual restraint in my life. I'm going to continue to, you know, gamble on the games and make lots of money, even if it's on the backs of the poor. Why? Because I am committed to enjoying the Roman pools. That's the libertines, right? And so Paul says, yeah, no, that, that doesn't work this way. That's not, as long as you're pursuing those things in your pursuit of pleasure, 
if you think that's where happiness is found, you're going to be disappointed. And so life, according to Paul, is found in surrendering ourself to Christ himself and to his life and to his pattern in the world and trusting Christ um, to fulfill his mission in our lives. And so Paul writes at the end of the chapter, he writes this, for many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And cross, think sacrifice, think suffering. Uh, many live as the enemies of the suffering of the cross of Christ. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And so for, their, for these Christians, their Lord and Savior wasn't Jesus, but pleasure. And Jesus was there to serve that end for pleasure here and the promise of pleasure in, in heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer picked up on some, something similar that he noticed, and he called it cheap grace. Cheap grace, right? And so Paul speaks against them as well. He speaks against this extreme, and he speaks against this extreme, and he tries to navigate a via media a middle way between those on these, on these polar extremes. And he's trying to say they have some truth over here and they have some truth over here, but they're both missing the point, which is the center, which is that we, what we're invited to do is surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ who liberates us and frees us and then to live our lives in grateful response, to live a life worthy of the gospel in a way that pleases God. Not to earn God's favor, but to express our gratitude. So after verse 2, Paul then says, look, when it comes to the law, I mean, you guys, you really want to follow the law. I mean, let me tell you, I've got you all beat, he talks about, right? He says, I've done it. Paul is the exact, exactly the kind of guy that every first century Jewish mother wanted their daughter to marry. He had went to all the right schools, he had all the right credentials, he had a wonderful curriculum vitae, and, and what he says in response to that is, if anyone else has reason and confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, just try to beat me at the law. I got you nailed. And by the way, in light of Christ, it's rubbish to me. After that encounter that he had, uh, I realized that none of that stuff was going to get me God's favor. And that's what it really comes down to. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness from my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. Okay, 
boy, that word righteousness is hard to think about because it's sort of colonial in its English language, right? But, but the word dekayasune, what it really means is right standing before God. To have God's favor, it means that even though you are guilty because of Jesus Christ, the verdict that has been given to you is that of innocent. So you are declared innocent and you are in right standing before God. That's dekayasune. So it's helpful to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, I have tried everything to try to get God's approval. But what I have found in Christ is that God accepts me and approves of me, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done. Some of you may have grown up in religious or home environments uh, of guilt and performance. And the message that you received is that here's the bar, and if you want approval, you're going to have to reach that. And so you'll, you'll get the love of your parents if you get up there, and you'll get the love of God if you reach these certain heights. It's up to you. It's your choice if you want that. Um, as opposed to saying, no matter what you do, I love you no matter what. Doesn't mean I, I don't approve of everything that you do, but forgiveness is always at my fingertips. And no matter what you do, I will always love you. When we, d- when we grow up in an environment when we don't get hear that message, sometimes when it comes to our parents, some, some people find their, that their whole lives they spend trying to get their parents' approval, even long after their folks have died. And so it is with family life, so it is with religious life. If you grew up in a religious environment that taught you that, uh, for many people, they can go on, even after they've left the church and rejected God consciously, they continue to try and strive to get God's approval. And that can be a psychologically torturing experience. Every religion and way of life says, here's how you get to God. It is only the Christian faith that says, I am God, come to you. Um, and so God in Jesus says, I, I already love you. I love you no matter what. I love you from all eternity to all eternity. I'm abounding in love for you so much that I have come to be with you myself and to save you from the mess that you're in. And this is the first and very basic key to joy in any circumstance is to know the love and acceptance of God for you no matter what already loves you. He already accepts you. Paul Tillich said, he was a theologian last century, he said, uh, faith is simply accepting that God accepts you. Accepting that God accepts you. Do you accept the fact that God accepts you just as you are today? Because if you allow God to accept you, and if you accept that God accepts you, well, that changes your life forever. And it brings joy. So you can understand why the legalists would be so frustrating to Paul because they're trying to completely reverse the core of his message that he has given his whole life to, Paul. God loves you no matter what. And it was yet the grateful response part that was the problem for the libertines. And so Paul said to them, how is it that you can take this wonderful 
gospel, this incredible gospel, the one who has given his life for you, and then not think that that calls you to live differently in the world. That, that shouldn't be reflected in how you live your life. And so joy is also found in our grateful response when we say, what wondrous love is this, that you would die for me. How am I going to live differently every day as a result because of your love? And so we get the joy of accepting God's love, and we get the joy of surrendering, surrendering to him and living according to his law of love in the world. And then the pain that comes when we just are pursuing pleasure, it starts to fall away, and our interests shift because the joy that we've discovered is much deeper and richer and more liberating than any circumstance could possibly give us. Two weeks ago, I had the great joy of um, getting to preach at the rescue mission in Salt Lake. And uh, Tom Metcalf was hosting the service and Bethany was leading worship on the piano. And what a beautiful experience that was for, for me. Um, before I preached, this young guy named James came up and shared his testimony. And he was, you know, in his young, early 20s and had found himself, he had given his life to booze and found himself on the street in, in Idaho and um, near his home, but was lost all contacts and family and this and that. And he, he got enough money to get a bus ticket. And a bus dropped him off in Salt Lake. He had never been here before. And someone pointed him in the direction of the rescue mission. And he stumbled his way into the rescue mission where they said to him, we love you and we accept you exactly as you are. A message that he had never heard before, either from his parents or any community. And he gave his life to Christ. And it's, you know, been a couple of months. He's working through it. But his passion in his testimony, that acceptance, that sharing of God's love caused him to want to change his whole life. And now he's being propelled forward with a clear mission to know Christ and to share that love with others who are down and out. And so he accepted that God accepted him and that transformed his life and propelled him with a new purpose. That's the second key of finding joy, having a purpose in your life. So Paul found that once he accepted God's acceptance of him in Jesus, which transformed his life, he found that he had a new mission. And his mission was twofold, and really um, it's the same mission or purpose that each and every one of us have been given. And that first purpose or mission was to know Christ. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering so that I might become like him in his death so that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul his first aim, his mission, his purpose is to know Christ, to union with God. And that second mission is to make Christ known in the world, to preach and to build churches, right? But that's not all of our mission, right? That's like mine. But, but for you, like each and every one of us are called to do that in a different way. We do that through medicine. We do that in business. We do that in our family life. How do you make the love of Christ known in the world? That's, that's our purpose, right? And so he says this, I want to, I said that already, not that I have already obtained this or already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And this was Paul's defining purpose, his focus of his life. 
Now, if you've ever studied the lives of like these great people in history, um, the most influential folks, right? They, it seemed as though the older they got, the more focused their lives became on the one thing that they were about. They become less distracted by the agendas that others have for them, and even they're less distracted by many unrelated interests, including the, the, their former interests of their youth. In time, they all became centered on one idea or one vision. They possessed it, or you could say it possessed them. So for St. Augustine, it was the conviction that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. For Dr. King, it was the vision of a reconciled society. For Mother Teresa, it was giving dignity to the dying. And for the Apostle Paul, it was knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. These were the goals towards which they strained. All of them said no to anything that would encumber them from reaching that goal and yes to anything that would lead them closer to it. So Paul says in verses 13 and 14, Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And here's what an image of what that looks like. You know this image, you see them leaning in to that prize, leaning into that finish line. Paul gets this metaphor from his experience of the Greek games uh, throughout the empire. When we believe that every day God has a mission for us, not a script, but a mission, every day, wherever we are, if we wake up this way as mission-centered, mission-driven people, then no matter what our circumstance, somehow God can use us. God will use us and work through us. I want to share um, a video that um, is really significant for me, I think. Um, my friend Jim Toole uh, passed away right around Easter time, right after Easter. And Jim was the senior pastor for 15 years at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Tucson, Arizona. He, he was 59 years old. And uh, Yesterday was his memorial service. When he found out that he had uh, pancreatic cancer about six months ago, he knew that his time was going to be short, and he decided that he was going to um, produce five-minute videos every couple weeks for his congregation and, and share with them and reflect on this journey spiritually with them. And what I'm showing you now is his final video uh, to his congregation in, in Arizona. As you watch it, I want you to watch it and think about it in light of everything I just said. Where is joy found? What does it look like to, to have a clear purpose in your life? And what does it look like to have a deep acceptance of God's acceptance for you? So hear this testimony from my friend, Pastor Jim, who is with the Lord today.
I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jim when I grow up. Uh, Jim's dying journey from cancer became a platform for God's purposes. And his desire was to know Christ, to make him known. And you can see the joy in his eyes and in his voice as he talked. And what was it that kept, that shored up that faith, that joy? It was the community that they walked together. So I just want to invite you this morning to accept God's acceptance of you and, and to know that God has a clear purpose for you, to know him and to make him known. We thank you, Lord, by your grace. Make us whole. Set us free. Amen.